the You Don't Have to Be Perfect podcast opens the conversation to the contents of my book, You Don't Have to Be Perfect. We uncover and remove false beliefs that hold us back and focus on living in the truth. You can purchase a copy of this book at most online book retailers, including Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com. For those of you brand new here today, perfectionism is a destructive habit that plays a negative role in our lives. Perfectionism holds us back and it forces us to live from a place of fear instead of love. It lies to us by keeping us in that not enough zone, because when you strive for the impossible goal of perfection, you will always be in the lack. Hi friends, it's Vanessa Liu, your host of the You Don't Have to Be Perfect podcast, an authentic space to talk about life as a perfectionist in truth and love. Inside today's podcast, I have with me Rachel Pye Jones. I'm stoked for this interview today. Rachel and I have been Hope Circle friends for over a year now, and I'm so blessed to know her and honored to speak with her today. She's an incredible writer who lives in Djibouti, Africa. Her and her husband founded a school there, and if I'm not mistaken, have been living there for 17 years. Rachel is a runner and a mother of three and has recently taken on grad school. Her most recent book, Stronger Than Death, is an intense and inspirational story about Annalena Tonelli and how she defied terror and tuberculosis in the Horn of Africa. So I think we have a lot to talk about today. So I want to dive right in. Rachel, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I can't believe it's been over a year already that we've been in the Hope Circle writing group. It's awesome. I know. It, like, I was thinking, I'm like, is it been longer than a year? I'm like, I, I know it's been longer than a year, but I'm like, are we, I think we're getting close to two years because when we started, you, you hadn't published your book yet. And that was October. And mm-hmm. you know, this is October and it was long before that to my memory. So I was like, no, it's been a while. <laughs> it's been really, really great. I, I love that group. Um, So I want to know if you'll tell us a little bit about your call to Djibouti, how it came about. Sure. So I didn't know what Djibouti was before we came to the Horn of Africa. Um, I'm from Minnesota originally. And so when my husband and I first got married, we were living in this apartment high-rise complex in downtown Minneapolis that was close to the University of Minnesota where we were students. And at that time, the apartment complex was full of refugees from Somalia, mostly Somalia. And so as we lived there, we just were getting to know people and we knew that we wanted to live abroad. That was just something that God had put on our hearts from before we had been married, for me, from when I was really young. And we just had no idea where or what. We knew we wanted to be useful and practically helpful, not like coming in to say, we know what to do, but to go to a place where we were invited and, um, and needed. And so through some Somali friends at that apartment complex, we got an invitation. My husband actually got the invitation to come and teach at a university in Somalia in 2003. And so because we had all those things together, like the invitation, 
of them saying, we would love for you to do this. Um, you, he had the skills they needed. We thought, okay, let's try it. Somalia sounds a little terrifying, <laughs> but also, also exciting and a chance to be part of something from the ground up because this was at that time the only functional university in the entire country. And so uh, we went, we went to the North, which the North at that time was very peaceful. It still is. It was stable and peaceful. And so we had two kids at the time. They were two and a half year old twins. And so, um, yeah, we moved to Somalia in 2003. And then it didn't stay peaceful for very long. So within a year, so October of that year, there was a number of murders and that caused my family to flee along with every other foreign organization in the region. Everybody left. And so um, we went to Kenya where we spent about three months. And then we had another friend, a Somali friend who said, why don't you come to Djibouti and teach at the university there? It's right across the border from where we were. And so my husband said, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And so 2004, we came to Djibouti and have just kind of kept on staying, been wow. here ever since. Wow, wow, wow. So I remember, I remembered there was something about um, your kids and Djibouti. And so how old were your twins when you went there? When we got here, they were um, three and a half. Three and a half. Okay. Another 20. Wow. See, see, that's a long time. So, and then, Mm -hmm. and then your daughter, is it your, your other, your youngest daughter? Was she born where? Where was she born? She so the twins were born in Minnesota, mm-hmm. and our youngest was born actually in Djibouti. So uh, she was born on September 11th, 2005, wow. and mm-hmm. uh, I I was I gave birth to her with a Somali midwife at the French military hospital on this day of kind of American infamy, you know. I mean, so September 11th, mm-hmm. and uh, and so to me it was it became a beautiful story of how this American Christian family, together with the Somali Muslim midwife, brought life into the world on this day, you know, where those two things, Islam and Christianity, kind of clashed. Not that those two things clashed specifically on 9-11, but that kind of became the story that's told about that whole season and event in our nation's history. So um, to me, it was kind of a redemptive story personally of having her here and I mean this is I I love that I had the opportunity to give birth here it was really scary because the medical system is not great Mm. but um just the opportunity it gave me to bond with my local friends and to learn about pregnancy and birth and postpartum kind of cultural things was really just so valuable and I'm really thankful Right. See, so that's what I thought. I was like, I think she had one of her kids there. And that is, that is a really um, cool experience and story that you get to carry with you. You know, that's really neat. So Mm -hmm. I know that when I read your book, Stronger Than Death, I was feeling like a spoiled little Christian in comparison to Annalena. (laughs) I was like, oh my goodness, this lady. Um, And I felt a little bit better when you had said, you know, you didn't feel like you measured up either. Like when you compared yourself to her and I'm thinking, really, you don't think you, you measured up when you're living over in this super hot place. And, you know, um, wow. You know, like this, I just, I was like, okay, that makes me feel a little bit better. So, um, can you speak to that a little bit? 
Sure. So let me tell a little bit about Annalena to put her into context. Um, so Annalena Tonelli was this Italian woman who was living in the same village as my family in Somalia in 2003. And she was running a tuberculosis and HIV clinic there. She had been in Somali regions of Eastern Africa since 1969. And like, she had just done all this incredible work of developing treatments for tuberculosis, developing um, uh, clinics for eye surgeries, starting schools for deaf students, and then eventually do developing HIV treatment centers. Like she just was um, really committed to very sick and often ostracized Somali people. Mm. And her, she was very Catholic, so she had a strong faith. And she also was really radical in the living choices that she made. Mm -hmm. Like she would sleep maybe four hours a night. She would hardly eat because she felt like if the poor don't have enough to eat, why should I be over consuming? Right. She didn't use a pillow because again, if the poor don't have a pillow, why should I have a pillow? Just all these choices that she consciously made to, to fight against comfort and consumerism and to be consistently putting needy people above herself and their needs and their, um, their human dignity and, and value above her own comfort. Yeah. And um, I, <laughs> so, so she's the woman that was killed when my family had to leave. Um, and I never had a chance to meet her, but I heard all kinds of stories about her. My husband had met her one time. So as I started researching her story and like interviewing Somalis and her Italian family and all these people that she had interacted with and everybody said the same consistent story that this was how she lived. I just felt so convicted. Of yeah. like, I also came to Africa to try to be of service and to try to um, love people and you know, motivated by faith, and I definitely have a pillow. <laughs> right, right. I definitely eat, you know, more than I need, and I wear clothes, and I, I mean, she wore clothes, but I, <laughs> you know, I choose comfort a lot of the time, mm -hmm. uh, and so I just remember, and I just felt so challenged by her way of life, and so at first, that made me feel guilty, like, have I failed to live up to my commitments or have, am I not following Jesus in the way that I say I want to, because I'm not doing it just like she did. Right. And I wrestle with that for a long time. And, um, it's not just her example. But we have other examples like her. We have mother Teresa, we have, uh, well, Jesus himself, you know, we're going to never go up to that standard, but we have even humans, Oscar Romero, who did radical things. Um, that most of us just don't choose. And so there could be this really strong tendency to compare. Mm -hmm. um, so even, yeah, just often that's a, a way, a place that my mind and heart can go. And so what I learned from thinking about Annalena's example and, and how we had made some similar choices and some different choices was that uh, I, don't, I don't ever believe that we are all called to live the same thing to make the same mm -hmm. choices um and I don't think that we even can I think that yeah. her standard of living and her way of life was so radical yeah I don't even think it's something to be aspiring toward <laughs> um she just was unique and she had a special gift and a special calling that was powerful and unique for her and I don't feel like it should be something that all of us um mm -hmm. should have 
aspire to. But I also feel like as humans, just knowing our tendency toward selfishness and sloth and um, and comfort and our own self prioritizing over other people's needs, I think we need people like her yes. who can give us something to pull us out of that that uh, selfish tendency. Like if we have a few people that that can be a little better than the rest of us, you know, giving us um, something to say, okay, I don't need to just sit in my own mediocrity, right? but I, I can be inspired to be a little bit better, to be a little bit more generous, a little bit more loving, a little bit less fearful. Right. And so I don't know if that's like being lazy and that that's just saying, well, I can never do it. So, but I, I don't feel like it's realistic to expect everyone to do that. Yeah. Especially like I have kids, I have a husband and kids and it's very different. She was a single woman without children. And so she could make different choices. Right. Um, this is like a really long answer, but it's, I feel like it's a big, a big thing that people wrestle with when they encounter yes. her story. No, I'm glad I like, I'm like, yes, yes. Say all of this because um, I, I know I felt, I, I felt a little angry <laughs> at some parts. I was like, come on, seriously? Like, like I think she, I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I think she refused to bed, right? Like she was like, no, mm -hmm. I'm going to sleep on the floor. I mean, we, we know she didn't have a pillow, but I think she didn't even have a bed because she was like, no, I, I'm not going to be comfortable because they're not comfortable. And I, I remember this, this, the thing that sticks out to me was when she was visiting her family. Um, and they were at like an Italian restaurant or something and she ate like two noodles or something like that, or like two pieces of lettuce or something really. And I was like, really? Like you're with yeah. your family. Can't you be a little different only because it, not because I want her to be selfish, but because it made me feel so horrible because I know that I would be like, woohoo, food. <laughs> um, okay, that's how I am. Well, I asked her, her sister-in-law, so her brother's wife, I met them in Italy, and I asked her basically that same question, like, how did you feel having her as a sister-in-law? And she would come and you'd take her out for dinner, and then she would do that. And she, I could see in her face, like, that, yeah, that was something she had wrestled with, and she said, we just can't all be like that. Yeah. And, uh, and I just could see even the people closest to her, they wrestled with it. You know, just in my, in my grad studies, I just started this week. And I was doing some reading for it today. And I was reading about martyrs in the first century after Jesus. So in like 100, you know, 80, 80, things like this. And I, the way that they spoke of the joy and the awesome privilege that it was to be a martyr kind of blew my mind. Right. And I found myself wondering if someone like that found themselves in today's American church, mm. would they recognize that we follow the same Jesus? And I, I don't think they would. And that really convicted me again. And I had to go back to the same things that I was thinking about with Annalena. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and part of it, I think we do need to be shaken out of our complacency. We do need to be pushed to be less seeking of our own comfort. Of course, we're never going to be the same. I don't think I'll ever I don't know. I can't imagine that I would just be rejoicing to be martyred, mm. but, but I, I do need to push to seek less of my own glory and less of my own comfort. And, and so, yeah, I'm convicted and, mm -hmm. and also think. 
Well, and you know, I, I think what you said earlier on is what helped me. Um, like, okay, well, not everybody's called to be her or not everybody's mm-hmm. called to be a martyr, but they can inspire us to be more generous, more, um, you know, selfless, you know, those type mm-hmm. of things, more, how can I serve instead of, you know, where's my comfort, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I thought, okay, yeah. Cause I, I mean, I really did. I was really struggling when reading that book and I was really enjoying it. Like I was very into it, but it was just this wrestle of like, gosh, <laughs> I'm so convicted. And yet I don't think I can do that. Like, I really don't like, I wouldn't even be there in the first place, you know? And like how you're in, you're over there in Africa, you're in Djibouti to me. Okay. And I might've told you this before, but one of my greatest fears when I, when I was like in high school and like, like trying to decide, am I really going to follow Jesus? Like, am I going to do it? You know, my biggest fear is that he would call me to Africa. <laughs> I mean, how awful is that? I know it's awful, but I'm being honest. Like, and so then when I yeah. met you, I was like, she lives in Africa. That is, oh my gosh. <laughs> like, wow. And I get to talk to her. <laughs> and um, it's just, it's exciting to me. And that's like partly why I was so excited to do this interview today. Just because I'm like, wow. Like she's in Africa and even my kids, I told them before I started and they were like, really? And I'm like, yeah. And it's like 7 PM there. And they're like, whoa, <laughs> it was, it was really cute. Yeah. I totally get that, that it seems so wild and out of the normal. And at the same time, like it's totally normal now mm-hmm. for us, you know, and and okay here's something that was interesting i was just talking with my daughter about today covid right now it's way better here than it is in minnesota when we left we were in minnesota for the summer and um we have had zero positive cases in like three weeks besides cases that arrive at the airport so they quarantine and they're separated in community Class schools are in person, no masks. There's no masks at stores because there isn't any COVID. It's just not here. We don't know why. I think they're still trying to figure out why. But in some, and also, so like in one way, that our life right now is much um, more normal in terms of that kind of interacting than it was in the US. And also, um, coming here, I wasn't expecting this to happen. I just didn't know that it would happen. But it has changed me and transformed me in terms of my faith in terms of our family life, in terms of our dependence on community in ways that I had not anticipated. So like in, in really beautiful and good ways that I'm so deeply thankful for that I, if I looked back and thought I was scared to come here, it was only because I was afraid of the unknown. Right. Not because I was of anything legitimately scary. Mm-hmm. Of course, there are things that you could list off as scary, but you could also list things off about America that are scary. Right. You know? Um, And so like the way that we depend on a local community, less individual individualism is, is really a a nice way to live. Um, You know, there, I know that there are people here who would come at a second if I needed them, they would drop everything to come and help and things like that. Or um, 
the way that faith, because we're in a Muslim country, it's almost, the local population is almost 100% Muslim. And so faith is a huge part of their daily life. The call to prayer five times a day, full month of fasting, um, even just in their speech, they're very Godward in their speech. And so as a person of faith, even though it's a different faith, it makes it very easy to be a person of faith here mm. um, because it's just assumed that you are a person who respects and honors God. And um, so there, yeah, there are things like that that I think if I had known all that, I might not have been so afraid, but it still was the unknown. So yeah. there, it's always crossing over that bridge of, of entering what you don't know that is scary. Yeah. But on the other side of it, it's really beautiful. Yeah, fear of the unknown is is the biggest fear, you know. And and when you're leaving a place like like where you know I live in L.A. County, <laughs> and um, everything here is pretty predictable, you know. So when you take away everything that you've known and you go to a place where you have no idea what their rules are, um, and like you mm-hmm. you know you've shared with me before, like there's not really good air conditioning there, if any at all. It's really, really hot. Those two things alone would drive me insane. Like, I, I don't do well in the heat. I really don't. Like, it's just a fact. I, I get extremely um, short-tempered when I'm hot. And, and <laughs> like, I, I just have no patience. Yes, there, yeah, there's been... Uh... So, okay, I say that it can be good and beautiful on the other side of it. That's not to say there aren't significant challenges. And there have been moments where I'm like, just like literally hands on my head, rocking back and forth, crying because of how angry I am about something like the air conditioning or, um, you know, there's holes in my backyard right now down to the sewage. And we've had a man every day for three and a half weeks promising to come fix it has not come to fix it. So I just... Like there are really frustrating things that, um, and of course there's bigger things than those. So there are small things even compared to more, but so yeah, there's challenges for sure. And I, I don't handle the heat well either when it, when it is bearing down on us. I get oh, See comfort. No, <laughs> that's comforting. <laughs> um, so you share with me that your biggest goal is to feel useful, to know that, what you've done in your work, in your relationships, you know, that has served people in the area, you know, where they feel need. Um, And you especially want to help people live with courage. And since I know you a bit, I can tell that this goal fuels you. I I see it a lot. Um, You're always working on a new project or several. And uh, so do you ever feel like you've received encouragement or confirmation that your work does matter? Do you feel like that? I feel like it goes up and down. And I, I know my husband wishes that I just uh, believed it. Like I'll hear a good thing and I'll remember it for a little while and then I forget it. Mm-hmm. But he, you know, he keeps on telling me like, don't you remember these encouragements people have said? So yes, people have encouraged me. There's been, so my website has been called Djibouti Jones and there's very few people writing in English about Djibouti so I have a hold on that market like it's me mm-hmm. it's a small market but it's mine and I, I've been um 
walking like at my daughter's school and a stranger will come up to me and say thank you so much for your website it made me feel like i could actually come here with my family and we could have a good life here mm. or um encouragements that people have said you know thank you for being so honest about the things that are hard because even if they live in tanzania or china or wherever they're encouraged to know that it's hard and it can still be good um, so people have on occasion really encouraged me to keep keep doing it Mm -hmm. um and yeah that really encourages and fuels me to keep doing it because so many times i'm like oh forget it this is so frustrating to to be writing or to be feeling so vulnerable um publicly but yeah the encouragements really help well i can relate to the you know you you get an encouragement you hold on to it for a little bit but then for some reason that the discouragement part is so much heavier um, I, I think it's just like a human thing. I, 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 I've never really <laughs> figured out why it is that way. Um, and then also your goals. I can relate to those goals so well. And like, I love and I hate that I feel that way. Like, does what I'm doing matter? Because in that, it's like this selfish thing. Like, well, I have to do something that matters, you know, and even though I'm wanting to do it so that I'm useful so that I'm bringing value to this world, you know? Um, and then on the love side, I love it because I believe it shows the true desires of my heart, you know? Um, but it's like up and down. You know, do you think, I'm just going to think out loud here for a second, but as Christians, as Christian women, uh, pride is like the root of all evil, right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of driven to us. And so if, if I were to hold on to an encouragement and really believe that my work was good mm -hmm. and my work helped somebody and served them in a way that was worthy of the praise they gave me, would that make me proud? Mm -hmm. And so I wonder, I grew up in a great Christian home, but th those things have been in me from birth practically. So I wonder if that has kind of taught me to cut off those encouragements and just be consistently um, never good enough, always, yes, always, you know, mired in sin and, and all these things. And so I, I have to believe the negative things because yeah. these good things, if I believe them would make me proud, that's messed up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what though? I, I actually have, I have thought of that, um, many times I'm like, is it because I'm like afraid to believe them because if I believe them, maybe I'll be too proud and maybe I'll do things on my own and I'll stray from Jesus and I need to be humble. And, and, and I, and I think, I mean, I, I know I have those moments where that exact thing happens where it's like, okay, that's great. Oh, good. I'm, I'm glad that that helped you. And moving on because I can't just sit there uh, because what will happen to me? I'll, I'll get too in my head, you know, I'll, <laughs> I'll think too much of myself. Yeah. Mm. And yeah. What was the very first thing that God said when he made humans? He said it was good. It was very good. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's just like our identity. It's not necessarily what we do that he was talking about, but I have to like keep coming back to that myself. Um, the identity part, no matter what I produce is goodness. That's like our, my groundedness. Yeah. I, I think for me, I, I just try to balance both. Not that you can really, I don't, I've found out that 
balance is as false as perfection. Like, I don't really think you can hang on mm. to balance. It's, it comes and it goes. You have moments where you're, you know, on the, the teeter-totter is straight, but it's only for a few minutes because then your legs get tired. And then one side, right? So I think um, balance is one of those goals that I finally like, you know what? I'm not going to strive for balance because it's not going to last, but I can enjoy the moments when I feel the balance. And then, okay, now we're back to the teeter-totter, you know, like now we're back to the up and down. Um, oh my goodness. So I got to see here. I, we we kind of like, whoop. Went off a little bit, but I love it. I love what we just talked about because I think that's a really important conversation um, about the faith. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I've had that with anybody yet. And yeah, I, I really have. I've thought those thoughts. Like maybe it's just because mm -hmm. I'm afraid of being too good at something because then mm -hmm. it's going to be a sin. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. So would you agree that the enemy uses comparison on, and our good intentions to discourage us? What do you think about that idea? Yeah, I've been thinking about that question since you wrote it um, a couple of days ago. And I don't tend to use that language very often. And I don't know if it's just not how I was raised, I guess. I don't know. But so I don't often use the language of the enemy, mm -hmm. but I definitely that that's a real thing. And I, I know my own enemy, if I could say like my inner darkness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely tends towards comparison. And what was the second thing? Comparison and um, like even our good intentions he uses to discourage us yeah. because it's like, yeah, because of exactly that. if I have a good intention that I want to help do something productive, do something good, uh, find meaning in my work. That's all those are all good intentions. And then I might become proud mm -hmm. and I might become sinful. And I might, like you said, abandon faith. <laughs> yes. just, I just think that is so messed up. And so whether those are lies from an enemy or lies from my own head, uh, lies is what they are at the bottom of it. Mm -hmm. And just, just so that you know, and my listeners know, when I, I do use enemy a lot and then I try to explain to people because they're like, oh, well you give the devil too much credit. And I'm like, okay, but to me, the enemy are my thoughts, my self-critic, or they're anything that is against God, like anything that doesn't line up with him, um, so like, you know, that whole, like, if you're not for God, you're against God, you know? And so if it's yeah. not on the side of God, that's the enemy. And I don't want to listen to it um, because it distracts me. Yeah. It distracts me. It pulls me away. It, it hinders me, you know, it might take me a few steps off my path, you know, and, and I don't like it. Um, but just to generalize it, that's what I like to use because whether it's me attacking myself, because yes, I do that all the time. I probably have a little bout of it every day. Um, I don't think I had it yesterday. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> but, um, but yeah, pretty much every day I'm fighting this stupid, mean, critical person in my head. 
you know, and going, no, shut up, get out of here. <laughs> oh, I love Check it. it out. So Rachel, you have published work all over. You have several other books and I didn't even know that till like more recently. I didn't know you had like a lot more books. Um, you've been published in several magazines, including the New York Times, which I thought was super awesome. And, um, and then Stronger Than Death is almost a year old. Um, and you have another book coming in April. So, uh, what would be the best way for my listeners to connect with you, follow your journey, maybe pick up some of your books? That would be awesome. <laughs> uh, my, well, they can come to my website, rachelpiejones.com. And the best way is to sign up for my newsletter. I send it out every other week and it's got all the information about my own books as well as an essay and stories from the Horn of Africa, things like that. Um, and I also run a Substack newsletter, which is a little bit different, but it's called Do Good Better at Substack. And so they can find me there too. Or I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So all the places. Awesome. Very accessible, even though you're in Djibouti. <laughs> yeah. So I will make sure that um, the listeners have those links in the notes. I kind of wish we could keep talking, but um, thank you so much for your time and for arranging this in a completely different time zone that's like, you know, it's probably like almost another day. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe not. But it's, it's, it's a good way to end the day, the conversation with you. Oh, good, 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 good. Well, and it's a good way to start my day. So thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for being with me today. Let's keep practicing saying no to perfect and yes to truth. Take care. <laughs>